Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Kay Jakimala-Dune. Today we take you to Camden, Maine, where Matthew Storn and Robert Costa discuss Robert's New York Times bestseller, Peril, along with global and domestic political issues. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Matthew Storen is a Notre Dame graduate who served as an editor of the Boston Globe from 1992 to 2001. He also has worked at the New York Daily News, Chicago Sun-Times, and U.S. News and World Report. He previously served as Associate Vice President for News and Information at the University of Notre Dame and currently teaches courses at the University in Journalism and Ethics. Robert Costa is CBS News' Chief Elect and Campaign Correspondent. Costa received a bachelor's degree in American Studies at Notre Dame and a master's degree in politics from the University of Cambridge. He previously worked at the Washington Post, Washington Week on PBS, and NBC News and MSNBC. We will now join the conversation in progress. So to get on to the more serious part of the conversation here, um, in your book, one of the most shocking things that I found was that just before the inauguration or during the uncertain period between the election and the inauguration, somewhere along the line, China got the idea that we might attack them. In other words, that the president, President Trump, to create a distraction or something, might actually launch an attack against China, which, I mean, China is not exactly a backward country. It seems implausible. And yet, General Milley and I guess um, the CIA director both verified that this was the case. Do you have any explanation for why, or did Milley have any explanation for why they believe that? It was such a fascinating moment, not only in American history, but in global history. And as Bob Woodward and I spent nearly a year working on this project, it was so interesting to us as reporters to realize that what was going on in and around January 6, 2021 was a national security story and a foreign policy story. As then-President Trump was watching television in the dining room off the Oval Office, the rest of the world was watching us. And as we reported exclusively in our book, China, other adversaries, allies, went on high alert about the United States. That They were concerned that this country, this global superpower, the hegemon, was somehow falling apart, that democracy wasn't functioning. And General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had to take it upon himself, based on our reporting, to calm the waters inside the Pentagon and inside the global community, in particular with China. And our book shows that it's important for US military leaders like General Milley to have a back-channel relationship with foreign counterparts. So in moments of confusion, there can be some kind of communication that enables a frank conversation to happen. And so on January 8, 2021, two days after the insurrection, Milley gets on the phone with General Lee, who he's built this rapport with over time. And he says to General Lee, don't worry, nothing's going on in terms of the US trying to attack China 
and the South China Sea had been hot for the last few weeks, a lot of different exercises, some close encounters, and he re reassured Lee. Now, Milley has been criticized by Republicans. Uh, in their view, he was somehow tipping them off to war. But that's never what Woodward and I concluded in our reporting. To us, based on what we've seen and, and reviewed in our own conversations and reporting with different sources, Milley was trying to make sure the system continued to function, the global system and the American system. And January 8th, not January 6th, is likely to be remembered as a critical date in American history because that was the date where a Speaker of the House called the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we provided a transcript in the opening of our book of that conversation, which is stunning still to read, wondering, are, is the U.S. nuclear arsenal under control? Is it going to be safe? The Speaker of the House openly wondering in a private conversation whether the, the nukes were okay, whether China was going to attack. And so Milley was doing a lot behind the scenes, and the January 6th committee, which uh, began long uh, after, began issuing subpoenas long after a book was published, but was operating before a book was published, has in its last few hearings, in a way, underscored everything in our book. That especially the last hearing on Thursday night when I was on with Nora O'Donnell on CBS, all the testimony under oath, under the threat of perjury, highlighted, especially by Matthew Pottinger, the former Deputy National Security Advisor, how much this was a national security crisis. And that's why I'm, I appreciate the invitation to be here, because as a reporter who's not an expert in any way in national security or foreign policy, but spends a lot of time talking to national security officials, talking to political leaders, it's so evident to me as a reporter that these issues are constantly intertwined. And that someone like Chairman Milley, who has to deal with global issues, foreign policy all the time, the Secretary of the Defense, the National Security Staff, politics matters. And if a political leader is failing to do their duty, the system often cannot hold, or at no. least becomes fragile. And it, it, uh, it does reflect well on that national security and military apparatus. But perhaps less uh, reflective in a positive way was our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And in your book, you trace that even in the early, early days of the Trump administration, they were beginning to talk about doing this. And then it continued. You have some information about a debate within the Biden administration about uh, exactly whether they would go ahead with the withdrawal or they'd add troops, et cetera. But with all that preparation, why did it go so poorly? In both parties now, when I'm out there in Iowa, in South Carolina, in other early voting states, talking to Democrats and Republicans, it's clear that there's a non-interventionist streak that now courses through both major political parties in this country. After what Republicans and Democrats now refer to as a forever war in Afghanistan, by 2021, the appetite for continued intervention, even if it made sense in terms of intelligence in, in the military position in the Middle East, in Asia, in other parts of the world, to have a presence in Afghanistan, the appetite was not there on Capitol Hill and with many of the grassroots voters, the progressive left and the conservative right, uh, who have soured on the war. And so much of the, the issues on foreign policy, the positions voters take now, I really trace back in my reporting to what the decisions were under George W. Bush. And that experience has scarred people, Democrats and Republicans alike, about the need to be in Afghanistan. And so Biden gets elected with these pressures on his shoulder to get the U.S. out, knowing that Trump 
was able to eat into many working class democratic areas because of not only his pitch on economic issues and trade, but because of his pitch on foreign policy. Trump is an heir uh, not just to Pat Buchanan in that version of populism, but also to Ron Paul in his presidential campaigns in 2008 and 2012. And Ron Paul actually did very well with military families more than any because they often bear the greatest cost. They do bear the greatest cost of intervention abroad. And so the decision on Afghanistan is something Biden did and what Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has described privately as a very presidential decision. Biden brought in the military. He brought in everyone to have a conversation, a dialogue. But as Woodward and I reported in our book, Biden, too, had the past weighing in on his own decision. So much about Biden's decision to just get out in the summer of 2020 comes to his own experience with Obama, President Obama on Afghanistan. Early on in the Obama presidency, when Obama had to again weigh, like so many of these recent presidents, what to do in Afghanistan. Biden's belief, based on our reporting, was that Biden, uh, Obama was rolled by the military to stay, keep it going, keep the money coming, keep building, keep expanding the footprint. It has an intelligence worth and value. And Obama was convinced on this, President Obama was. And Biden came in not against the military, he's very close to the military, but averse to having the stay argument just be the one to readily accept his conventional wisdom. And so Biden went through the process in a way that was very much not weighted toward withdrawal, but people who were close to Biden sensed that from the, the first day of his presidency, that's where he was headed. And, and to get out, it's, it was always going to be rough. And as the news coverage was coming in, Biden got a little frustrated. And we have a scene in our book where Biden goes like this on the Resolute desk. You know, he says to Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and others, the buck really does stop here. Yeah. Well, if you look back at, at the last few years, increasingly we have had an administration, the Trump administration, that by and large, with some exceptions, wanted to withdraw from international engagement. And then it's true that Biden went ahead with the withdrawal. But there also, I think, his, his state of mind is not to withdraw from international engagement. He wants to redo the Iran nuclear agreement and also uh, his engagement with the war in Ukraine, the fact that he you know, you know, unified NATO to some extent. Uh, but how do, our, how do our allies look at this? I mean, are they looking at the U.S. as being unreliable? I mean, uh, Trump could be reelected, or we could have a Republican Congress within uh, six months. Is that, is that a problem? Do people in Washington see this as a problem? It's not necessarily a problem, in my view, but it's a reality. As a reporter for CBS, when you're in Washington as a correspondent and a reporter, you have to stay close not only to those on Capitol Hill and in the administration, in the bureaucracy, but to those who are at the embassies. And those who are at the embassies for nations that are both close to us and not so close to us, uh, they are on high alert about the political situation in the United States. Uh, they wonder. What does it mean if the Republicans take over in 2023? What does it mean if President Biden is somehow has diminished with his political capital, maybe not because of his doing, but because of inflation, Republicans attacking him? What does this all mean for U.S. foreign policy? And it creates a lot of unease about the future of the Biden presidency because 
there's a belief that Biden, as a former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, brings an internationalist posture to the White House. And he has engaged on climate change. He has engaged uh, militarily with Ukraine. He was very much in the, in the mold of George H.W. Bush, according to his advisors, and how he went about the Russian invasion, trying to make a coalition of partners to think through how to handle this. He's been highly encouraging of making sure the funding continues on Capitol Hill. And McConnell and, and others have worked with him on that to an extent to make sure the money keeps flowing to Zelensky. Uh, but the rest of the world is watching and wonders, you know, what is going on and how did we get here? And I think about that a lot as, as a reporter. How, how did we get here? And I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's so much much, to answer your question, it's much more complicated than just talking about Biden. I think one of the key things I, ha I have as my creed as a reporter is to assume nothing. Those two words sit above my computer on my desk, assume nothing. Because every mistake I find in journalism, Matt, is when we make assumptions about what's going to happen. And we all missed the Trump story. Now, I covered Bernie Sanders and Trump before anyone else at the Washington Post. I got to know them both. I've known Trump for 10 years. I've known Bernie Sanders for about the same amount of time. And these two things were happening on both sides of the political aisle without almost any attention for a long time. And I think many of you in this room, not to come at you personally, but you probably have a lot of assumptions about who, what this country is, who we are, how we think, where we're going. And the one thing I would urge you is to shatter them because I spend my whole life traveling. First time to Camden, Maine, unfortunately. I should have been here before. <laughs> but... I go everywhere, the Midwest, the West, the South. I was just in the South. This country is big, diverse, and not exactly where you're going. They don't think about things on an international level anymore. And just a quick story. Um, to, the thing that always is seared in my memory is back in June of 2011, more than a decade ago, uh, I began to sense something was happening. I went to Pella, Iowa, and there was a film premiere there for a, a movie called The Undefeated. It, it was a documentary about Sarah Palin. Conservatives wanted her to run for president for the Republican nomination in 2012. So I went out to Pella, Iowa to cover this premiere. And it was rumored she might jump in. And uh, I thought it could be a, a real story. So I go out to Pella, Iowa, and I'm supposed to meet the director of this film, The Undefeated, kind of a propaganda right-wing film. But it was worthy of coverage, I thought. Having covered the Tea Party movement, you got to keep an eye on these things. So I go out to meet the filmmaker at about 3 o'clock at a coffee shop. The premiere is that night at a theater like this in Pella, an old theater, nice theater. And so I go into the coffee shop, and it's in a small town, and there's no one there. There's a college student. The barista looks like my younger brother, very skinny, tattoos. There's like a homeless guy. There's a mother. There's nobody there. It's a big coffee shop. And... I sit down, it's supposed to meet with the director at 3, 3.20, 3.30. I said, I mean, this guy's not well known. I'm not well known. And I say, but still, I call him up. I say, hey, it's Bob Costa. I'm here to do an interview with you for this movie. You're half an hour late. Came out to Pella, Iowa to cover this. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm here. I said, no, no, you're not here. There's nobody here. The homeless man stands up. <laughs> and he says, I'm here. My name's Steve Bannon. <laughs> Long beard, 
military fatigue jacket, gray hair, wild eyes, and I sit next to a guy named Stephen K. Bannon in June of 2011 in Pella, Iowa at a coffee shop. This is before he even joins Breitbart. And he's a filmmaker from Los Angeles. And he, I'll never forget this conversation for the rest of my life. He sits across the table from me, and he says to me, I'm going to make Sarah Palin the next president of the United States. I said, what? One, she's probably not running. Two, who are you? And I said, well, he's not, she's not running. And he said, you don't understand. And he got very serious. He said, you don't understand. The middle class in this country is broken by the global elites. The establishment has ruined the middle class with the bailouts, with the Iraq war. I'm going to make Sarah Palin the next president of the United States. The future of this country is nationalism. I said, nationalism? This is 2011. I said, what is that, some kind of Charles Lindbergh BS? I said, what, nationalism? No one uses that term. He goes, nationalism is the future. And I thought he was nuts. He wasn't. He was right. I mean, well. well. <clears throat> he found another candidate. He found another candidate down the line. But I, I mean, I just think back to that because he saw it. That doesn't make him a genius, but he saw the anger. He saw the nationalism. And when we wonder about US foreign policy, we have to be very objective. If, even if you here in this room have spent careers working with an internationalist view of the world, the US has a role in protecting democracy, or at least promoting democracy, global coalitions on issues like terrorism or climate change, you have to confront that that might not be the reality of this country, now or in the future. And if you can learn to accept that, and I have to accept that as a reporter, you really learn to, that so much of what's happened over the past 15 years has had a powerful effect on how people process U.S. foreign policy. And that's why I think it's so good you have these conversations, because U.S. foreign policy is not what it was under Reagan, under the Cold War. It's not what it even was under George W. Bush. Everything has a cost. Biden's withdrawal will have a cost in how people perceive him on foreign policy, the Democratic Party, intervention abroad, and, and Trump, his engagement, his handling of China, it has a cost for the Democratic Party. I mean, when I started covering politics, the Democratic Party was the anti-China party, in a sense, mm -hmm. about jobs and the economy and trade. Trump stole those issues. Now, the Republican Party is the populist nationalist party on trade. Right. It's fascinating. And this all plays into foreign policy. Now, you uh, cautioned me and us against concentrating on Biden. But he is the president. Um, he's not doing so well. Uh, at least as far as the polls are concerned. I thought you meant because he has COVID. <laughs> well, he's not doing so Hopefully well he's doing either. better. Hopefully Come on, he's man. doing better. So uh, can you see why he's failing to gain traction with the public? I, I don't buy this conventional wisdom on Biden. I just don't. Because I covered Biden in the campaign very closely. Biden's the greatest political survivor of our time. Loses in 88, washed out, plagiarism charges, comes back. Anita Hill, Senate Judiciary, battered around, reputation troubled, survives, carries on. Wife and child killed in 72, carries on. 2000s, he tries, tries to run in 08, doesn't go anywhere, becomes vice president for the first black president in this country, becomes a key advisor for eight years, vice president of the United States, doesn't really want to run again, watches what happens in Charlottesville in, in the summer of 2017. That scene opens our book, because that's the moment Biden says, I'm going to be coming back. Now, some of his friends have told us he always was coming back, <laughs> OK? Because 
they say Biden only has one mode, running for president. <laughs> and that mode still exists. People keep saying, how can he run again? All he does is run. That's what he does since 1972. He's been running for over 50 years. And it doesn't stop. But Biden was, the press covered Biden like he was a, a nobody for months. And then what changes? Jim Clyburn, South Carolina. It's a great story, actually, real quick. Uh, Clyburn meets with Biden on the USS Yorktown in Charleston, South Carolina, right ahead of a Democratic debate. And they have a meeting, and he says, I have two daughters, and they've never seen a black woman on the Supreme Court. Can we make this happen? And Biden says, yes. And Clyburn says, you better say it at the next debate. Clyburn's old school. We'll make a deal, but I want to hear it publicly uttered. So at the next debate, Clyburn's sitting first row with his best friend, Benny Thompson, now chairman of the January 6th Committee. And it's, the debate's gone on for an hour. There's a break. And he turns to Benny Thompson, and he goes, have you heard him say Biden say anything about the Supreme Court? No. No. Clyburn says to Benny Thompson, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Clyburn doesn't go to the bathroom. He goes backstage. And he pulls Joe Biden aside. And he says, Joe, what are you doing? Where's our deal? Where's the mention of the Supreme Court? Oh, oh yeah, I know. I, I'm, I'm for it. I'm going to do it. Joe, you better say it. Say it. And so at the end of the debate, Biden still hasn't said it. He looks down and sees Clyburn in the first row. And, then, and Biden's final answer, if you go watch it, is so awkward. Biden's going on and on. And then he goes, oh, and I'd like to finish by saying, I promise to nominate a black woman onto the Supreme Court. And the place goes wild. And Clyburn, the next morning, endorses Biden. Biden was dead politically. He had stumbled in Iowa, stumbled in New Hampshire. Clyburn's political capital lifts him out of nowhere to win South Carolina. The whole field, as COVID happens, collapses. Biden becomes the nominee. Biden wins the presidency. And when you say Biden's in a tough spot, the polling certainly indicates that. There's no argument. Let me just raise a couple points on Biden. Biden comes into the White House in February, January, February, March. He passes the biggest piece of legislation we've ever seen on spending in this country, $1.9 trillion rescue plan. He has to get Joe Manchin to come along. Finally does, March 5th, 2021. When's the last time any of you have mentioned the $1.9 trillion rescue plan? But it happened. The biggest spending piece happened. Months later, trillion dollar on infrastructure. Trillion dollars on infrastructure. Doesn't have, no one talks about it, it seems. Because people still wonder, why isn't the social component, build back better, uh, happening? That continues to be stalled. But Biden's passed massive legislation because he had the surprise gift of a Democratic Senate after Trump fumbled in Georgia with the two senators. And Biden's, in his view, has accomplished a lot in terms of recovery from the pandemic, though it continues to be a problem, and the economy getting back on its feet a little bit. But he's also facing criticism that all this spending, in part, led to inflation. And so much of politics is the economy. And if people feel that inflation's 9 10%, then they're not going to give Biden credit. And, and that's really the conundrum he's in. He felt he needed a major rescue plan. Uh, but a political question for history will be, should Biden or did Biden do enough to bring Republicans in early on in the presidency? He had relationships with Susan Collins. We have a scene in our book. It's a great scene of Maine, actually, where Susan Collins gets a call from Biden. And she tells her husband, keep driving around the Bangor airport, because I don't want to get dropped off until he gets off the phone. And he, he keeps talking and talking and talking. 
So she keeps taking a ride around the Bangor Airport. And Biden's trying to get her to buy in, but Biden's number was too high. The Republicans wanted something around 800 billion, and Biden was at 1.9 trillion. And so it never happens. But that's a great what if of the Biden presidency. If he hadn't gone that big at the start, where would he be politically now? But suppose that uh, the Democrats don't win those two seats uh, just before the inauguration, and he's got in Georgia, and uh, he's got a Republican Senate. What would that have done to the Biden presidency? Well, it would have had his hands behind his back. It would have been a different presidency. He's been able to pass historic spending legislation because he has those votes, barely. But he has the votes. He got it done. Uh, but McConnell is an intriguing character because, in many ways. <laughs> You're I mean, not in Kentucky. No, not. He of course, blocks Merrick Garland. He overhauls the Fed judiciary. He will be remembered for pushing the courts in this country to the right. You can't argue that whether you hate him or love him. He has pushed the courts in this country in a, in a historic way to the right, the Supreme Court and the rest of the federal judiciary. But McConnell was the one person during the Obama presidency who could really work with the Obama White House. He would cut deals with Biden. If you think about all, remember the Republicans, the fiscal cliff? The Republicans would scurry up to it in the House, try to leverage President Obama. The famous moment in 2013 where Senator Cruz had the idea, I can get President Obama to kill Obamacare by threatening to shut down the government. All these fiscal showdowns. Who solved those fiscal showdowns? It wasn't Speaker Boehner who had a million problems in his conference. It was McConnell working with Biden because McConnell and President Obama didn't get along too well. But it was Biden and McConnell who actually were able to work. I remember standing outside of McConnell's office in 2011, 2012, when I'm starting out, and I would see Vice President Biden come in all the time to meet with McConnell. So there was a basis of a relationship there. To answer your question, there was a foundation of a trust. Biden's been to the McConnell Center in Kentucky to speak. But Biden made a decision when he got the Democratic Senate that he could have a, what he believed would be a transformational presidency. And Ron Klain, his chief of staff, was encouraging of that, that go big, be a big Democratic president. And Biden also recognizes that he has the left in, animated in his party in a significant way that he can't pretend doesn't exist. Senator Bernie Sanders almost became the Democratic nominee twice. Uh, and it was no kind of side win, uh, sideways campaign. These were real candidacies by Sanders. And so what does Biden do? Instead of bringing in Collins to cut the deal, he brings Sanders in on February 1st, 2021, and points up at the picture of FDR and says, that's the direction we're going, Bernie. And that's where they've gone. But, you know, the American people, as far as we read in your reporting and others, uh, they were not electing somebody who they thought was going to be transformational. They wanted somebody to return to normalcy. And if he had a Republican Senate, he would have had to deal in a bipartisan manner. Maybe it would have been even more frustrating for him. But I think it would have been closer to the Biden that people thought they were electing. It's, 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 I think so much of 2020, though, were they electing Biden? Was it a, a referendum on Trump? Yeah. Was, yeah. This, was it about Trump's handling of COVID, <clears throat> uh, the, the chaos of Trump? Uh, Biden was seen as a seasoned pair of hands. But I, I'm not sure. I've, I've talked to a lot of voters in 2020. I went probably 20, 25 states to cover different campaigns. I'm not sure that 
voters were yearning for bipartisanship. They were exhausted. And the reaction to the exhaustion of Trump and COVID was Biden. And you saw that with the mail-in voting, with older voters, mm -hmm. voters who were suburban, maybe inclined toward Obama, who had drifted toward Trump because of their frustration with the global economy, frustration with immigration. They gave Trump a chance. Women, in some cases, many, it's always striking to me how many women did not like Secretary Clinton when I encountered them yeah. on the campaign trail, taken aback by it a lot. So they gave Trump a chance, but those were the softer suburban voters who went back to kind of a more conventional candidate. But Biden wasn't running as Mr. Bipartisan. That's fair. Um, I'm going to ask one more question here and then turn it out to all of you. So be thinking of your questions. There's a lot of areas still to be covered. But uh, st sticking with Biden for a moment, the, uh, a lot of Democrats, as I read on social media at least, are very upset with how the press is covering Biden, the so-called liberal media, and their expectations for how they should cover Biden, I suppose, play into this. What would be your view on that? Well, Matt, <laughs> I just sat down with the vice president for her longest interview, I think, in a long time, and we had a substantive, in-depth conversation. And that's how I think it should be done. Vice President Harris sat down with me in her office for CBS, answered everything I wanted to. I gave her time to have a conversation. My, I can't control anybody else except myself. I believe the Biden administration deserves scrutiny, but it also deserves an opportunity to have a conversation about its policies and why it's pursuing different aims. That was my approach with Trump. It was my approach with President Obama. I had a good relationship with the Obama White House. The Trump White House, that's a whole story. <laughs> we can get into that. But uh, I've known Trump for a long time, but Trump, we are investigating a lot. So, um, But the Biden White House, I understand, we have it in our book that President Biden is a little bit like President Trump in one sense. They both probably watch too much Morning Joe. <laughs> I've had a few Biden sources say to me, a couple of mornings around 9.30 a.m., bad morning, a lot of Joe, a lot of Mika. <laughs> Hearing it from the big guy. And that's, I, I said to them, this sounds exactly like what I would hear from the Trump people. Oh, boy. Spent three hours watching Morning Joe this morning. Because they're, they're very different presidents, but they're similar in the sense that they're sensitive to how they're being perceived, how their presidencies are being evaluated. Biden comes in in what he believes is a crisis moment for American democracy, just days after an attack on the Capitol. He calls it, in his inaugural address, a winter of peril. And I said to Woodward, that's our title, winter of peril. The publishers thought that was a little lyrical. Peril was fine. <laughs> but we did use the quote uh, in the beginning of the book. And Biden comes in with, a, he believes, an economic crisis, a COVID crisis, a democracy crisis, and he believed he tried to tackle them with ambition and with transformational progressive policies, a decision, progressive, no doubt. And but, he, but how do you feel the press, you, you know, you're, I'm not thinking of you in this context. Sure. How do you think the press generally has treated Biden? He doesn't Tough want question. to make any enemies. <laughs> That's true. But I, 
I think the, the president, look, when I, when I sat down with Vice President Harris a few days ago, the press is always at its best when it focuses on substance and issues. It doesn't make itself the story. And whether it was with Trump or Biden now, when the press becomes the story and people start to pay too much attention to the press, you realize something's off. The greatest joy I have as a reporter is recognizing, and it's like a, a calm that comes over you, that I'm not the story. And I'm not the story. I'm an observer and chronicler of history. Sometimes I have to nudge and push those in power for answers, but I'm not the person in power. And I think the press under Trump became such a central story, sometimes necessarily, because we were driving investigations. It felt like every week at the Washington Post, I was on Brian Williams on MSNBC, scoop, 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 this investigation, this thing from the DOJ, this congressional investigation, that we were front and center and in an aggressive posture. And many of President Biden's supporters don't love that the press has continued in some aspects to have that posture. So I think the criticism of the press on Biden comes from a place where they feel Biden doesn't merit the same approach that was taken to Trump. And I understand that point of view, but I would just urge people who are angry with the press to understand that if the press is being aggressive, it can be annoying, sometimes it can be tone deaf, sometimes it can have a blind spot and take something more seriously than it should. But at the end of the day, you still rather have an aggressive press than not. Good, well said. So we're going to turn the lights up, and we're going to turn the, uh, the questioning over to all of you. Um, if you uh, can raise your hand, we have volunteers who will bring a mic to you. And uh, I'd like to have you identify yourself by name and where you're from, if you're a student, what high school you're from or college you're from. And uh, we will go from there. Do we have a, do we have a first uh, over here? Yes, so this gentleman over here. Terrific hearing from you, Mr. Costa. My name is Tom Lowell. I'm from Connecticut. Quick question. New York Times this week published a series of columns from Paul Krugman, Brett Stevens, and others entitled What I Got Wrong. Krugman did a mea culpa on inflation. Brett Stevens wrote about how he was too harsh on Trump voters. If you wrote a What I Got Wrong column, what would it be about? <laughs> Great question. What I Got Wrong. Um, what did I get wrong? Oh, it's not that hard. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what I got wrong. So uh, Bob Woodward and I signed this book deal in December 2020. And I quit PBS. They thought I was negotiating when I said, I'm, I'm going to go write a book. They said, oh, we'll, get, we'll, we'll make this work for you. I said, that's OK. It's not trying to renegotiate. I'm going to go write this book. So I, go, I leave, resign from MSNBC, go on leave from the post. I'm all in on the book, focusing, focusing, focusing. And around December, late 2020, early 2021, around just January 2nd, January 3rd, I started to feel something was weird in the air with Trump. Something's weird. My sources in the White House, my sources around Trump, I've known him for a long time, interviewed him too many times. Something's up, something's going, something's dark. And I heard, uh, from a person close to Giuliani, that Giuliani and Bannon were huddled at the Willard Hotel. And I went to the Willard Hotel on January 5th, 2021. I was there from around 9.30 at night 
to 11.30 at night, trying to get in to see Rudy. And because I didn't have a hotel key card, I was not allowed in. The security was being very tight that night. So I had to stay outside in the freezing weather. And I was with the mob outside. The city was empty. But circling the hotel, almost like soldiers, were proud boys and oath keepers. And I kept saying to my sources close to Giuliani, let me in. I want to see this war room. I want to see Bannon. I want to see Giuliani. They wouldn't let me in, but I kept seeing these crowds fight with police officers. No one else was there from the press. This is late at night, freezing cold. Because of COVID, Washington's empty. It was the police, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and inside, Bannon and Giuliani. But no one knew Bannon and Giuliani were there, but I knew they were there. And around 11.30 at night, I call Bob Woodward, and I say, and I don't know why, but I always just call him Woodward. I say, Woodward, because we're both Bobs, so it's confusing. <laughs> I say, Woodward. I, I can't get in. I can't see Bannon and Giuliani, but I know they're here. They're up to no good. Uh, and he said, I said, it's 1130. I said, I'm freezing my ass off. Uh, I'm going to go home. I've been here for two and a half hours. It was a little unsettling seeing all these right-wing extremists walking around with military-type things. And Woodward goes, yeah, that's right. Take all the notes you can. Get the scene. Uh, but come, come back. So I went home at around 11.30 at night on January 5th, 2021, when I was outside the Willard Hotel as the only reporter. And what I got wrong, and I will regret for the rest of my life, is not just buying a damn hotel room at the Willard Hotel. <laughs> uh, another question. That was a good question. Over here. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Nancy Steiner, and I'm from New York. And um, I'm wondering, I love that you keep the expression assume nothing. Um, I'm wondering if we are foolish in assuming that our democracy as an experiment is in danger. Good question. I, I am an eternal optimist, maybe wrongly. Maybe that's a bad assumption, but I do believe as a reporter, I'm always, I leave my trips always more enthusiastic about this country than not, as dark as things are. And I was in Washington at the Willard. I've seen the darkness. I've seen the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. I've been confronted by them multiple times. I've seen it out there. But I also have seen people pay attention now uh, that this country is fragile. People are more active, I've found. They're despondent uh, in, in part, but I think you got to, you can get to a very dark place if you spend your entire life by seeing the United States through the prism of your phone. And so many people now do what I call doom scrolling. And they believe that Twitter and social media in the news is the United States. And that's a channel that can drift and pull you into a riptide of depression. Uh, and I would just urge you to remember what I see as a reporter is not that constant. People are complicated. Uh, people sometimes have extreme views, right, left, but they, they can drift back to normal. They can come sometimes be rational. Sometimes people are provoked by strange personal grievances, odd things that I don't see a collective problem. But I do very much worry about this country on one particular front, and that's truth and information. You, look, you go to state capitals around the country. It's changed even in the decade plus I've been a reporter. State capitals that I go to that used to have 20 reporters now have five, six, three. 
and you wonder who's paying attention to those in power. The local media has so often disappeared. Yes, some papers do persist, college educated voters, those who are just interested in the news continue to read, but there's no revenue sources. Nonprofit journalism is becoming the go-to model. And so when local and state news, that's why I think it's so important for you to come to community events. When communities disappear in terms of news organizations, what happens? The nationalization of the news. Everything now is Trump and Biden, Trump and Biden, the Democrats. It's not about so often your senator or your community leaders. It's about what's happening at the national level. Everything is processed through cable news, through broadcast television, through social media. And that, to me, has a corrupting effect on truth and civic culture, because then we just become passengers in a nationalized news environment. And it makes people uh, who are on the extreme often get a lot of attention. And those who are doing the good work at things like the Camden Conference, in local towns, get no attention. And when people who do, get, do good work get no attention, it creates real problems for the country because it's dispiriting when you're going about a lot of things, when you're an educator. I know I've met some great teachers tonight. And so much good is happening, but all you see in the channel of your phone is the terribleness. So remain optimistic because look who's people came out tonight, even amid COVID and, and all this, to try to be part of a community. And this, this Camden hasn't fractured clearly. And the country hasn't fractured, and you got to stay positive, but also recognize that if you can teach, if you can mentor people. And the, the most important thing I've ever seen in 2016, no one talked. I would go to Milwaukee, Ohio, and I'd go to Starbucks. Starbucks are a great place to report because people are okay with a random stranger coming up to them in a Starbucks because <laughs> it's kind of the one place in a town, especially in these suburban areas where people do pass each other like ships in the night where it's okay to talk to someone. And so few people talk anymore. And the silence at the Starbucks always struck me. And the one thing, if you really want to improve this country, and I'm not here to offer any political advice, but if you want to improve this country civically, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends. The isolation in this country is so real. People living on their phones and on TV. That, 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 people don't even talk when they're in town or at a restaurant. Talk to people. Because it, the isolation is what feeds the anger. Question up in the balcony. Um, my name is Whitney Lloyd. I'm a retired American history teacher. We live in Cleveland, Ohio, and we have a house um, in Tenants Harbor, Maine, so about 40 minutes from here. My wife and I have been very carefully watching all, as a lot of you in the audience, I think all eight debates of the January 6th investigation, and this hasn't come up tonight, but we're all wondering, you know, ultimately, as each one more and more comes out, how the illegal things and the incredibly dangerous activities that were going on at that time between the election and the inauguration. And my, my concern is what, and, and I've been very impressed with it, and been masterly done, and, and Liz Cheney's just remarkable what she's done for the, this um, episode. But I, what, what are they hoping will come out of this in terms of will it impact the, the 2022 election, or will it, impact, will it keep Trump out of running again? And, 2024, will it put Trump in jail? Is, and nobody knows, but what are they hoping? They keep extending them and, and saying this is the last one, then now we're gonna do more, we're gonna come back in September. And I think it's an amazing process. But I'm wondering what are the ultimate, what are their wildest hopes might come out of this, these hearings? Uh, this is a moment 
that is a reckoning for the Republican Party, a crossroads, and it's a reckoning and crossroads for Attorney General Merrick Garland. After watching these hearings and digesting the testimony, the witnesses who are speaking truth about what they really saw behind the scenes, whether it's the Pence security detail fearing for its life to those inside the White House who watched the president sit idle, does the Republican Party still rally behind this man, Donald John Trump, if he seeks the nomination again in 2024? And there's a rumbling in some quarters of the right in this country about whether that will happen again. Look at the New York Post today, the Wall Street Journal today. Maybe not here in Camden, Maine. People are reading those too. But uh, those two papers owned by Rupert Murdoch, both today in their editorial page, said Trump's unfit for office. And this is a paper that had Trump had talked to just a few weeks ago for an interview with the New York Post. So the Republican Party, I interviewed Liz Cheney for CBS Sunday Morning. It was a great interview, not to tout it, but if, it was. if you go on YouTube and search Liz Cheney Sunday Morning, really had a contemplative interview with her about her party. Where does this party really go from here? She faces her own test in three weeks, her primary race in Wyoming. Does this party, though, does... The January 6th hearing, we're never going to maybe convince the Trump voter to totally flip. But does it soften the Trump voter on Trump to say maybe we'll give a shot to Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, Ron DeSantis of Florida? Now, you may not like them if you're a Democrat here. <laughs> but the point is, for some of these Republicans, can they just move the party away from Trump? The trickier question is Garland. What does Garland do with this? And the question is really for lawyers in this room, what is criminal intent? Did Trump have the intent to disrupt Congress? Yes. Was that a prosecutable crime if he believed in some way that the election was stolen, a false claim? For Merrick Garland, that's a tricky question because there may be a mass amount of evidence that Trump tried to disrupt his democracy, obstruct Congress, pressure his vice president, weaponize his vice president against American democracy. But is that something that Merrick Garland can take into federal court and say, I can close this case with a jury? And to prosecute a former president is a weighty and politically and emotionally, not emotionally, it's politically and legally charged issue. And it, Garland's thinking through that very hard. Uh, it's not going to be, I don't have an answer of where he's going to land on this, but it's not going to be easy for him. But what we do know, and Woodward and I, I remember the moment we found it. This was very serious, what happened. Uh, Woodward and I would do these interviews. We would transcribe them. We'd sit down with people for hours. And I was telling somebody before this, you know, they said, how do you get all this information out of people? Hours. You know, we're having an hour here tonight. You're hearing a few things. But if you sat down, if I sat down with you, and asked you about your parents. Okay, you don't know me. And if I asked you about your parents, you have probably five to ten stories you tell about your parents, because that's what you do in a social setting. You'll go up to a certain line about your parents. And there are things you'll share at a dinner, maybe a long dinner, you have even some more in your holster. But you have a few stories that you've honed and forged over time that define the parents and for public consumption. But if I sat down with you in my house, and I gave you a chicken salad sandwich, I gave you some coffee, maybe a glass of wine. I sat down with you for two or three hours, then four or five hours, and I asked you to come back the next day. 
we had some more food, some quiet, and I had a chronology of your entire life in front of me. And I had scenes I had picked up from other friends of you about your relationship with your parents. There would come a time where you would look at me, put your glass down, and say, all right, let me tell you the truth about my parents. <laughs> and that happened again and again in reporting this book. That people have stories they tell themselves about the truth, stories they tell themselves about themselves, but at the end of the day, there's only one truth. Your parents are who they were, for good and for ill. What happened on January 6th in the White House and in around it was what happened was what happened. And people love to spin stories in their life, but it's often kind of brutal and not that fun. And we discovered at one point the John Eastman memo. Two pages, six parts, a blueprint for a coup in the United States of America to throw the election back into the states by using the vice president to discredit the election. If it had happened and it was this close to happening, this close, you would have had a democratic crisis, a constitutional crisis, unlike anything you've ever seen. And uh, the January 6th committee is doing important work, whether you are a Republican or not, because it's bringing out testimony from people under oath. And that, to me, is important for the historical record. Even if you can't stand Liz Cheney, you should listen to when people testify under the threat of perjury about what happened. We have some hands up in the back. Hi, my name is Martina Straka. I go to Oceanside High School in Rockland. Um, I was wondering, uh, what is any advice you'd give to any youth interested in pursuing a career in journalism? And what are some of the struggles you faced in your early career? Well, I think for someone who's in high school, thinking about college, the, the, the toughest thing for young people today, I'm 36, but I'm talking about people who are 18, let's say to 25, 10 years younger than me, and maybe the next generation is what I was saying about the phone. You spend your whole life now watching others your age live their lives curated for Instagram. And that can be crippling for you professionally and personally if you start to constantly watch others and compare others to yourself and say others are doing this, they're taking vacations here, they're getting this internship, they're living in this city. And you can start to feel depressed, and alone that you are not succeeding. And so many young people I know who are very bright, very ambitious, they wash out. They wash out. And it's not because of anything that happened at work. It's because they mentally can't handle that their career is not r revving up. My career seemed to be a joke for a long time. I I've had a lot of early success, but it wasn't always like that. When I was at University of Cambridge, I went to the University of Cambridge because I met a professor when I was studying abroad who said I should apply there because we had a good tea. I was interning in the House of Commons, and my MP, who I was working for, was late for a meeting with this professor, so he said, have a tea with him, keep him occupied. And he, after the conversation, he said, you should apply to Cambridge. I said, all right, I will. I applied to one graduate school, the University of Cambridge. I got in. I go, having never been there. When I'm at Cambridge, I start to apply to all these journalism jobs, Washington Post, rejects me. Wall Street Journal rejects me. Associated Press. Every place rejected me. Partly because I had no money to fly back to do interviews. This is before Zoom. <laughs> and I was 22 and they said, if you want to get an internship or a fellowship here, you need to come back to do an interview. I said, well, you've you got to fly me from Heathrow to New York. What are you talking about, son? You're 22 in London. You've got to pay your way. And I didn't have money to go. And the one person that would offer me a job over the phone was a conservative magazine called National Review. 
And I said to National Review, which was offering me a job of $50,000 a year, which at the time seemed like a billion, I said, I would love this job, but under one caveat, could I never write a conservative article? Can I just be a guy who reports? They said, that's weird. We've never hired anyone <laughs> like this. I said, I understand, but I'm a good reporter. Just let me cover the Republicans like someone at Car and Driver would cover Ford. Like, I, I know I'm working for a niche publication, but let me cover it like a beat. They said, again, this is weird. Most people who come here want to be the next George Will. I said, actually, I want to be the opposite, so please never pressure me to write an editorial of any sort. But they brought me on to their credit. And for four or five years, I was at National Review Magazine covering the right. And I was overweight. I was, no one gave a, a hoot about what I was doing most of the time. But I hustled. I kept going to the Capitol. I kept working. People who I'm even friends with now were so condescending to me. National Review. But I believed that I could just be a good reporter. And I actually never believed my career would go anywhere. But in 2013, the government shuts down. And who's the person who suddenly has every single cell phone of House Republicans and every Gmail? Me. <laughs> and I wrote a, a story. I broke the news that the shutdown was over. And it became, it was a tweet. It became, the Wall Street Journal and the CNBC wrote or articles about this tweet. That it was a tweet that shook the markets. I said it was over and the market soared after my tweet. Because the traders were all following my Twitter. And the Washington Post called me up, recruited me and said, Right, we're sick of you beating us. Just come work for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm telling you, so many people who are much smarter than me, much better looking, have all quit. You just can't quit. And you can't start getting depressed. Oh, I'm not doing, all these people are having such great jobs. And time. You have to have perseverance and patience. It's the hardest thing in the world is patience. We have... Uh... We have time for just one more question. And I believe we've got one right in the center here in the back. Hand is up, sure. My name is Andrea Rudolph from New Jersey, currently in Lincolnville. And I have a question about the politi how political the press is. You're speaking about reporting facts, but yet you look at Fox News, you look at CNN, and they are so biased. It's not about facts anymore. It's about political ideology. And that really seems to detract from what we all need to know, which is what is really going on. The Trump era certainly stirred things up. But I'm optimistic about this. CBS, I joined them in February. I mean, I've been able to have long, long sit-down interviews with the Vice President of the United States, with Liz Cheney, Glenn Youngkin. I mean, when I guest hosted Face the Nation two weeks ago, I had Glenn Youngkin, one of the most, even if you don't like him, one of the rising Republicans in this country. Serious interview with the vice president, serious interview. So it's just about the work. And CNN is trying to move in a more news direction. The new president there is Chris Licht. I've known him for years, good guy. I know CNN's trying to do news. We'll see how that project goes. I'm optimistic for them. MSNBC has some great reporters there. I went to high school with Hallie Jackson, uh, in, coincidentally, in Philadelphia. She's a great reporter. There are many others there. So the great reporting is also happening, but you mentioned television. And there's great reporting happening in the papers, but it doesn't get enough attention. And I don't know how to bring more of it, attention to it. That's part of the problem here, that we process the media now through 
the clips we see on social media and the fights we see on, on cable. Um, but the, the media has to stay serious, not boring, but serious, uh, and realize that a lot of the country's tuning out for various reasons. People are tuning out because the news is dark to them. They're tuning out because they see it as too political. And I every day see assume nothing, but it's not just about stories and about topics and where this country is going to go. It's about the media. The, the media... I mean, this country, when you say the partisanship in the media, it's actually a recent phenomenon. If you do a study of American journalism, this media in this country, the Washington Post, the great papers of this country, up until World War II, were highly political. There were Republican papers. Our great-grandparents would read Democratic papers, evening papers, morning papers. It had real political tilt. But it was CBS, Edward R. R. Murrow, it was the newspapers in the 60s and the 70s moving in a more nonpartisan direction, a mass audience. To get the most revenue, you needed a mass audience. So the political papers of the 20s and the 30s and 40s faded as radio and television and mass audience to get the most revenue became the business model. But it's a recent half-decade, half-century phenomenon. It wasn't always the norm in American journalism. And so as much as you may have a anger about how this is evolving now, and Matt probably has some thoughts on this as well, never have the expectation that what has been will always be. This has been a rough and tumble country since the revolution. Then we had a civil war. What we're going through now is tumultuous. It, it can be uh, very unsettling. But this is America. It carries on with its rough edges. Well put. I would like to just thank Bob for coming here. So on behalf of the Camden Conference, thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a discussion between Matthew Storen and Robert Costa. The extended version of this discussion is available at camdenconference.org slash events. If you missed part of this program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Music in this hour comes from our alarm clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.